Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17 this morning. Page 96 in the Pew Bible provided for you. If you didn't bring a copy of the Word of God, you're welcome to borrow one of ours, and I'd be glad to give you a copy of the Bible if, um, if you come and ask for one anytime after the service is over. Well, Christians sure do talk about blood a whole lot. It's obnoxious how much we talk about blood. We don't even just talk about it uh, like some kind of sick preoccupation, some morbid reflection. We sing about it with joy. It's the happiest thing to us. I will wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. What is that? What does that mean exactly? Whose priceless, priceless blood has ransomed me. Sin has left a crimson stain. He's washed it white as snow, and he's done that by his blood. And I could go on. We're going to close with a song this morning that, that begins with, this is maybe, I should probably have us sing this song more often, but it's this line, it just, it's almost too much for me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's a weird image. And sinners plunged, it's getting weirder, plunged beneath that flood, <clears throat> lose all their guilty stains. Well, we sing it and we mean it. And it is a beautiful truth. And Christianity is just strange enough to match those kinds of images and lines. Why is it that Christians sing so much and rejoice so much over, over blood? Well, chapter 17 in the book of Leviticus turns out to be a crucial, if not the most important chapter in the book of Leviticus, the Old Testament, hard to, hard to match it to some other crucial chapters, but you'll see why. Chapter 17 turns out to be awfully important for our understanding of blood. Let's read. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, Blood guilt shall be imputed to the man. He shall shed blood, and the man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Now, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. For every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Well, in our home, blood's usually a bad thing. You think of blood in movies. Hmm, like how much blood? Well, that'll determine whether we watch that movie or not. Too much blood? Bad movie. Then there's blood that comes out of you, like uh, on your elbow or on your knee. I'm hearing about these, these parts of the body all the time these days. If you get a scrape and you've got blood coming out and you're a little kid, you know what that's like. And that's scary. That's, where did this come from? You can't see it. Usually you have your, your skin is holding your whole body in, and, and when it rips, blood comes out. And too much can't come out or you're in trouble. And hospitals lose too much blood and you could, you could lose your life. The only time blood's a good thing is when it's on your plate. Had some meat with blood in it this last week. It was, it was delicious. I grew up in a home where I learned this later in life. And I will justify myself in light of the word later because we did just read a passage that would say not to do this, hold you in suspense. My father would always, uh, you know, cook the meat rare. And then my mom would preach a little sermon against us about how that was bad. And then she would give us kids well done steak. And this is just how I thought that it was. And then it was the mid-20s out to dinner with some good friends and I'll embarrass myself with my part of the story, which I wasn't committed to doing. The illustration would be just effective without it, but it's occurring to me I should be fully honest. So my friend was running a little late, and he texted me. uh, Did he text me or did he call me? Because I could have read it. He must have called with his order. I said, no problem. I was kind of talking to somebody, and the server comes around, and I didn't remember what he wanted. It was steak. So I say steak, and I just order what I ordered. Well, you know where this is going. Well done, of course, like everybody. Well, the steak comes, and I see him across the table, and he's hanging his head, and he's cutting it and looking at the server and kind of complaining, and he's sort of upset. At least he's discouraged. It occurred to me, ah, I should have been precise as to what kind of steak he wanted. Oh, he wanted it medium or medium rare. I don't know. But it struck me just how emotional he was about this. The sense of loss and not being able to eat the steak that he really wanted. And from that day, I figured out I need to explore steak. Well, the only time blood is usually a good thing in our home is when it's on the table. But then we have this passage here. 
You have this passage, which is all about not eating blood. Now, what that means is not eating meat with the blood in it. You're supposed to get all the blood out of the meat. And I'm going to get this out of the way at the head. This isn't a hygiene thing. This isn't a health thing. There's something else going on here. We've seen blood in the book of Leviticus. And if you've been with us over the last number of months, you might have noticed a contradiction. There's a kind of a tension that surrounds blood. On the, on the one hand, blood is the thing that if you come in contact with it, or you're in a season of bleeding as a lady, or you have a baby and there's blood, you, you're unclean and you've got to be away from the presence of God, the tabernacle, for a period of time. On the other hand, while, while blood can keep you away from God, blood is also the way into God. So for at the tabernacle and on this altar, you'd kill an animal and you'd splash blood in front of the veil and on the horns of the altar and you've been following us for all of that. All kinds of manipulation of blood in this space in order to cleanse it from death so that you, from the realm of death, can be in the presence of God. Blood is dangerous on the one hand and on the other hand, it's your very deliverance into into God's presence. Well, here we are in chapter 17, right after chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the high point of the book of Leviticus, the very center of the book of Leviticus, the day of atonement, the big day with the big offering for sin in which all of our sin is removed and we're given forgiveness of sins for all of our sins. Oh, it doesn't last like Jesus' forgiveness does. But, but this was the big day for the people of Israel. Their lives and the whole nation was purged of all their sins. And they would do this every year. Now, everything leading up to the Day of Atonement, even the Day of Atonement, concerns... As you read the word holy, all of the the holy references in this first half of the book have to do with the tabernacle, the presence of God, or the sacrifices there, or the priests who are working the system there. And the second half of the book, flowing from our atonement on that day, references to holiness are mostly about our life and the people of God. And so as we'll see... The first half of the book is about our approach to God through blood. The second half of the book is about our life before God in holiness. Our coming to God, a holy God, and our communing with a holy God in holy living. The God who is holy, whom we approach through blood, makes us holy by his holy presence. There's a beautiful shape to this book. Well, this chapter 17 doesn't exactly go with the rest of what's to follow. It doesn't exactly go with what comes before. Structurally, it's not exactly in the middle of the book. Some scholars say that chapter 16 and 17, they go together. Um, Others say, I think this is probably the way to see it, chapter 17 functions as a a hinge. We've had a high point and now we make our, our way through a turn into the second part of the book. Part of this chapter has to do with worship, and part of this chapter has to do with everyday life, if you will. So it functions as a kind of a a pivot in the book. So that's where we 
are. Well, this morning's sermon will follow the the text. You could break it up a couple different ways, but we'll break it up two different ways, two parts. The first part, blood as a gift for God alone. And the second part, blood as a gift from God alone. Let's start into the first part here. Blood as a gift for God alone. And as we'll see, we could just as well put that this way. Life as a gift for God alone. Your life as a gift for God alone. I'm using this gift language. Here in the first part, it's indicated that we offer offerings. Verse 4, offer it as a gift to the Lord. And then the second part in verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it. Now, that's an important word, given it for you. This first part having to do with our worship to God and the second part having to do with our life before God. So blood or life as a gift for God alone, verses one through nine. We have a command, a rationale, and then some implications. Let's take a look at this command. Verse three through four. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, this was the the camp in which Israel lived, or kills it outside the camp in the wilderness and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to offer it as a gift to the Lord. In other words, to kill it there at the entrance of the tent. In front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. Well, just a little refresher and a reminder here. We are growing in our knowledge of how the Old Testament system of sacrifices worked. And with every week, there's some reminders and our our insight is compounding, but it's also important just to keep refreshing ourselves explicitly. I I don't want to leave anyone who's brand new to Leviticus, and it is quite something to drop into the middle of a book of the Bible. We just work through books, but this one can be difficult. So some, some refreshers on these offerings. We read here about a peace offering, and in verses eight through nine, we read about a burnt offering. And remember the peace offering. The peace offering was that offering where when you offer it to the Lord, you offer part of it to the Lord and part of it you keep as a food for a feast for you and for your friends and you might invite friends and family with you. It was food for an offering that was associated with joy and rejoicing and festivities. It was party food and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord which is to say the Lord is pursuing and delights in his fellowship with us and our fellowship with one another. And food is an indication of that. Well, the burnt offering was a little bit different. The burnt offering is the main offering in the sacrificial system. The burnt offering you put on the altar and the whole thing gets burnt and there's nothing left. And so the whole animal is offered up to God through the smoke ascends into the presence of God. And it's as though you're going represented by the animal 
into the presence of God. And while you bring a life of sin, so this animal is without blemish and the animal goes up righteous and perfect and representing you. And it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which, says, which is to say, it's constantly teaching us when we give these animals and they're entirely given to the Lord, that the Lord delights and takes pleasure in a whole life devoted to him. And so it's teaching us about the Christian life and about what the Lord desires and delights in from us. So you have a burnt offering mentioned here. And as we've said before, there's another offering called the grain offering, which is a gift of thanks. Particularly, it's called a gift. And it has to be assumed here, I would think, because this offering is called a gift. A gift of thanks. And the sin and the guilt offerings aren't mentioned here. We just did those in chapter 16. So those are the two offerings that are mentioned here. Maybe shorthand for the whole offering system. They aren't always all recalled. And both a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Well, this passage also is particular about where these offerings are to be made. Notice, uh, if anyone in the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or outside the camp and doesn't bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that's where they're supposed to give it. This little picture we have of a tent, right at the entrance of the tent of meeting, that's where the sacrifices are supposed to be given. Not in the broader camp and not outside the camp. God is particular about where this is to be done. And he's awfully serious about it. Verse 4, the man will be cut off, does it wrong. In verse 9, If he does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Now, this could be a number of things. It could be that God would take their life personally. It could be that there was some process by which when this was discovered that almost like in a court of law and we have a whole system that's set up for Israel that the people would execute this and there's a kind of a capital punishment executed. But we don't have processes given here for it. We're not exactly sure how this cutting off happened, but it's enough for our purposes this morning, since thank God we're in the new covenant. It's enough for our purposes this morning to recognize that this was deadly serious. Deadly serious. If cut off didn't mean Death, it meant exclusion from the people of God as good as dead or worse. Deadly serious. So that's our, that's our command. And we've heard him loud and clear at this point. We're almost positive, and I'll argue this in a moment, that what he's talking about is not killing animals in general. Although it's not like there were lots and lots of them to be had when Israel was in the wilderness but killing animals in particular for sacrifice at the tabernacle, sacrifice and worship. So why? Why this command to kill sacrifices only at the entrance of the tent and not anywhere and not anywhere else? To make this a little more complicated for you, in Deuteronomy, the command is slightly different. When the people get into the land... And there's a temple built up and they have a permanent home there. They're allowed to kill sacrifices 
somewhere else in the broader camp. So what gives? Why is he more particular here? Does he change his mind later? Well, some clues in the context will reveal to us what is going on here. Verses 5 through 7 give us the rationale. So why this command to kill them right at the entrance of the tent? Verse 5, this is to the end. There's a purpose statement coming. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field that would be out in the wilderness that they may bring them to the Lord, that is, instead to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall do his work with the blood at the altar, and it will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There, when he says to this end that they may bring their sacrifices, leads us to narrow the scope of what we're talking about here from killing animals in general to killing animals for the purpose of sacrifice. And it seems there would be a contrast between sacrifices given at the the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifices given somewhere else. Why would someone give it somewhere else? Some type of convenience? And we find out here in the next, in the next verse. Verse 7. So, they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. There was apparently, for Israel in this period, through the wilderness, with the tent, in a land occupied by other nations and peoples, in a world where apparently the worship of goats was a thing, the worship of demons, demon goats, was a thing. A pervasive, constant temptation For Israel, a default setting for the people of God would be to offer sacrifices, not to him, but to these goat demons. May have been uh, associated with fertility cults. It may have involved kind of sexual immorality. That's possible. In order to entice and to draw out the, the goodwill of gods, foreign gods, to bless them with fertility, Fertility of the land. You can imagine anxiety over food and anxiety over provision. And, and the world is holding out these answers, which are to everybody else obvious as day. And if you don't participate, you shouldn't expect the rain. We don't know all that was going on here with the goat demons. It's certainly obscure and removed from us. But not so much. For we must always ask ourselves when we encounter idolatry in the scriptures of this nature, what we're putting our trust in, what we are tempted to seek for satisfaction and an answer for our security and our hope. Oh, they're doing the same thing, their desire for security and an answer and to be safe and to be provided for. They're just hitting copy and paste on what all of their neighbors are doing. And to opt out of it would feel dangerous, would feel to be putting themselves at at risk. But the Lord says, no, 
You will bring your sacrifices to the entrance of the tent of meetings. No sneaky sacrifices out in the wilderness. No sneaky sacrifices in the broader camp. The only place you will sacrifice to me will be at the entrance of this tent. That's where you will bring it. And the stakes are very, very high. To sacrifice to goat demons would be tantamount to saying that the Lord is not the one true and living God and he is not our God or that he can be added to other gods and that is not the case. No, he is an exclusive God and he is to be worshipped alone. Nowhere else can he be worshipped for his presence in the world and this time would have been at that tent and they are to worship no one else but him alone. Well, some implications. In the first place, your life, your life is for the Lord. When God calls us to exclusive worship, that is not being picky or pesky. That is being honest and good. And it is encouraging for us to know that we have a word from God and from God to us that he has made us for himself and he will share us with no other. He wants us. He is jealous for our worship and he is jealous for a relationship with us. That is exclusive. Your life is for the Lord. The burnt offering signals a whole life devoted to God that he's calling from us. We're all giving our life to someone or something. We are all spending our life somewhere. And God calls us to spend our lives, to give our lives, to offer our whole lives to him. And there is no one better to whom we can offer our lives than the Lord who made us and redeemed us. Secondly, God's worship is exclusive because he is the only God. He's the only God. This kind of demand for exclusive worship from outside a commitment to the Lord Jesus and a knowledge of God could appear insecure, unkind, or inflexible. We share all kinds of things. You think of, think of friendship. It's a bad friend who doesn't let you have other friends. And this is parents you know, shepherding their young kids in kindergarten and grade school. No, it's okay for Susie to have another friend. It's okay for Johnny to have another friend. And you need to have more friends than just them. And you can have more friendships than just one. You're even a better friend for having more friends. So think about that. Or bringing it a little closer to home, think about your children, parents. And be encouraged, children, if you have siblings and you're not an only child, your parents love each of you just the same. Our love as parents for our kids is expansive and inclusive. And as kids get added to a family, some love isn't taken away from one kid to get given to the next. Oh, there is limited time and there are limited resources, even limited attention and patience. Some things can happen when more kids come into the home. But our love is inclusive and it is expansive and it stretches 
according to God's design for moms and dads to include all of the children that call mom and dad mom and dad. But our relationship with God is not like the relationship of friends with one another. It is like children to a parent. But in this case, as it concerns our worship, it is more like a spouse to a spouse, a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband. A husband gets no credit for being more loving or being loving for adding other women into his range of affection, for adding another spouse. Now, and this is why you'll notice the language that Moses has used here. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore, leaving the Lord, their covenant Lord, who has devoted himself in love to them and who has called them to love him and to worship no other gods. It is a covenantal and an exclusive relationship in which this expectation of exclusive worship is not only natural to those who belong to him, but it is expected and appropriate because he is the only God. Which means we can't add Jesus to other gods. Jesus for you, Christian, our triune God for you, Christian, is not a part of your life. Is not one of many things that you're involved in. Is not one of many allegiances. When we come to Christ, we give ourselves, because we've been drawn by grace to do so, to one good master. And he holds the trump card on our affections and our life and our allegiance. And this matters for what we're calling our children to, and we call them to follow Jesus. And if God is at work and they turn to him by faith, they'll follow to him in this way, not without sin, but with an actual recognition of the real supremacy of Jesus over all things. And we happily confess on the Lord's day that on one day, there's coming a day when every knee will bow before him. He is supreme. And to be a Christian is to recognize his supremacy. This affects our work in the mission field as well. For when we go abroad, we aren't merely looking for numbers to count to send back to the United States to raise money. There are parts of the world where this is a grave and a great problem. Do not be deceived. Be very careful in hearing about insane numbers of disciples and churches planted. It matters what a disciple is and how we understand what a disciple is for our global missions work. And it matters what we understand a church to be in our global missions work. For in some parts of the world, it would be easy to get almost anyone to add Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible to their pantheon of gods. No, the work 
of seeing the gospel penetrate the darkest places, places where there are things akin to worship of goat demons and the adding on and the piling on of gods just to be safe. That work of penetrating the darkness, yes, even among the Riyal Malayu, where there is not, to our knowledge, an established church and gospel preaching outpost of a local church, multiplying the witness of Christ there, is slow work, it is patient work, It is deep work to understand the way that the people think and what the people believe so that we might preach Christ as he is and that so he might be believed for who he is. So that God may be worshipped as the one true and living God, not in addition to any other, but worshipped alone. So let that be the God to whom we pray and let this inform our prayers for the nations. And praise God, we have a God that is better and more faithful and more gracious and more kind and more merciful than goat demons. John Stott speaks about the exclusivity of Christ. He says, we're right to draw our attention to singing as a unique feature of the Christian worship and to for the reason for it. For there is no forgiveness in this world or in that which to come except through the cross of Christ. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The religions of paganism scarcely knew the word. The great faiths of the Buddhist and the Mohammedan give no place either to the need or the grace of reconciliation. And the clearest proof of this is the simplest. It lies in the hymns of the Christian faith. A Buddhist temple never resounds with a cry of praise. Now, Mohammedan worshipers never sing. Their prayers are at the highest prayers of submission and of request. They seldom reach the gladder note of thanksgiving. They are never jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. But friends, you and I are nothing less than completely and fully forgiven of our sins in Christ. And so we can offer our whole lives to him because we know how good he is and we have been brought to see it and to taste it and to trust him. May our lives be a pleasing offering to him. Our worship is exclusive. We do not come on Sunday morning because we are worshiping other gods on the other six days, but because this day anchors them all for us. All of our days lead to it and flow from it. For this Lord's day leads us to that great day when the Lord Jesus will come again. Blood is a gift for God alone. Your life, friend, is a gift for God alone. Now we move into the second half of the chapter. And in this half of the chapter, we have all kinds of instructions concerning what we are to eat, how we are to eat, what we are not to eat. Blood here we see is a gift from God above. It's a gift from God above. Now verses 10 through 16. Verse 10, we have a command not to eat blood. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against the person. In verse 13, we have Instructions concerning food you would eat that you have hunted. So any one of the people of Israel or the strangers 
who sojourn among them, everyone who gathers with the people, who takes in hunting any beast or bird, which was allowed, that may be eaten, and we had instructions for that earlier in the book, what shall you do? You shall pour out its blood, and once you pour out its blood, you're to cover its blood with the earth. Cover the blood with the earth. And in verse 15 here, we have another a different set of instructions. Every person who eats what dies of itself or is torn by beasts. So perhaps you find an animal that was recently killed by another animal. Free food. Uh, perhaps the animal has recently died. Also, free food. You can eat that food. There's no instructions here not to eat of its blood or to pour out its blood. I don't think that should mean that if you find it dead one way or another, then you can eat its blood. I suppose everyone would be running around hunting for, hunting for food that has already been killed or setting it up to be killed and then, and then eating it to get some nice bloody meat. No, I think the reason it's not mentioned here is it's assumed the blood is gone. You're going to find an animal. It's been long enough that the blood is, is gone. Now, how they went about eating it and all that, I don't know the ins and outs, but I think that makes the best sense of why you have a dead animal here with no instruction concerning blood. You do have instruction concerning what to do because you've been made unclean by the animal and you're to go through a washing and bathe your flesh and, and all of that to be clean. We've heard instructions like that, like that before. The stakes are equally as high. So look here in verse 10 again. I will set my face against the person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This is apparently personal for God in a way that he hasn't expressed himself earlier in the chapter. Personal, if you eat the blood of an animal that you have killed to eat, not even in the course of sacrifice. And in verse 14, we, we have the same. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of the creature. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Okay, so why? Why all this about not eating blood and eating meat with blood in it? Look with me in verse 11. Four is going to give us the reason. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So the blood represents, or is that point of focus as we consider the life of an animal more goes into life than blood but the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you this animal to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life so this would be speaking about animals sacrificed then it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This verse right here is why we have preached Leviticus the way that we have every time we've come up against the topic of blood to this point. This verse right here, any commentary you go to, once you start getting into Leviticus and get all this work about blood and what it does and how it works, you'll get a little reference to chapter 17, verse 11, which helps us understand what's going on with blood. The life of the creature is in the blood. The blood is its life. It's verse 14, the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is the life. 
for the life of every creature is its blood. Life in blood. And so as we've said, blood doesn't merely represent the death of the animal in the place of the person so that they may go free and live. Blood itself represents life and that's why it cleanses the tabernacle and cleanses the priests and that life blood cleanses the place of God's presence from the stain of sin and death so that we can be with God. And that's the rationale. Now some implications. Well, in the first place, obviously, all life is sacred. All life is sacred. This is teaching us anything. It's teaching us about the sacredness of life. Built into the very structure of life for the people of Israel, their worship and their daily life and eating were the considerations concerning blood what to do with it, not to eat it, and why. There was a certain reverence for blood, a reverence for life. Now, when we come to the New Testament, chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we have this command not to eat blood repeated. Let me answer a question here as an aside. The first time we have this command against eating blood is in the book of Genesis. Moses is allowed to kill and eat. Animals are given to him. He's not to eat the blood. And and the book of Acts chapter 15, you can turn there with me if you like. I want to relax you about my practice these last couple days. I'm still a good person. And you can be a good person too and eat, and eat meat. But if your mother, it's Mother's Day, gives you meat that's well done or says that's how you do it in your house, well, that's how you do it in your house. And if she has some deal worked out with the husband where he can do it every once on the grill, then that's how it works too. So in Acts chapter 15, we have... The apostles and disciples coming together to work out questions of what it means that Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, and brought salvation to the Gentiles. That the old covenant law is now fulfilled, and the new covenant is here, and the blood of Jesus, his cleansing blood, is on offer to everyone. Christianity is exclusive in the sense that there is one God we worship. It is inclusive in the sense that the invitation is open to everybody to come. And they had to consider, because the Jews themselves had religious practices that were as much at that point cultural practices, what is required of Gentiles to come into the people of God? Would they be required to eat all of these things? And the Lord Jesus appeared to Peter specifically and said, take up and eat. Pork was fine. Other things were fine. The food food laws were now obsolete. Now verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
So these are going to be instructions to Gentiles coming into the faith. And they're given these instructions. What's interesting is that in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul will write to that church and say that it's not wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Seems to go against this. But if it causes somebody to stumble, then it would be problematic. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul seems to emphasize strongly that one day there will become some who come and prohibit certain foods, but you're to eat anything given from God and give thanks for it. The emphasis is upon the truth that the old covenant is obsolete and the new has come. We're not to bind ourselves in these ways, but it seems that at the Jerusalem council here at this point in the transition, that several things were asked of Gentiles. And it seems to be out of consideration for the Jews who would have had such a cultural and formerly religious obligation to keep these things. Now, they're not to engage in sexual immorality. That will certainly stick. Perhaps that was an especial vulnerability for Gentiles. They needed that in their list of top four. But these other things would, would fade. They would not be binding. And I think a good case to make Here would be verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, this list of four things, which includes not eating meat with its blood, is out of consideration for the Jews that would be all over the place as Gentiles are coming to Christ. So I think the reason why this seems to hold in the New Testament is simply out of consideration for the transitional moment that the church is in. So go ahead and eat meat and eat meat with blood if that's your thing. It is mine now. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 17. All life is sacred, even animal life. Now, we can eat animals. They could even eat animals at this time. So the nature of human life is different than animal life. Animals are not merely more advanced. Excuse me. Humans are not merely more advanced animals. Humans are made in the image of God. Animals have life from God, but are not made in God's image. They do not bear his stamp. They are a different kind of creation altogether. But there is a certain basic respect for animals that a passage like this assumes. All life is sacred, includes animal life. This certainly includes human life. It includes human life in the womb. Uh, Human beings begin at conception Uh, That's something that we we need to remind ourselves of. We will be tempted. Perhaps some of you have fallen to this and been enticed into this. We will be tempted to eliminate our children before they are born. Children are a tremendous amount of work. Children change our lives. And the world around us is telling us in a thousand ways they are in the way and they are not a blessing. They are a blessing and they are God's way. And they are a gift whenever and however They come, however hard those circumstances may be. Human life begins at conception. You believe that a 12-year-old is a human? Why not a 1-year-old? And what is the difference between a human at 1 and a human at 3 months after 
conception. What is the difference except the location of the person? Except the degree to which they are dependent? Except the, the size of the person? There's a little acronym which may be helpful as you consider the nature of unborn life. Uh, it goes SLED. Size, level of development, environment, where they are, and degree of dependence. These are the only things that separate an unborn human life from a human life outside the womb. In fact, it's incredible what we know now about how all this works. That when a sperm and an egg come together in that moment, an embryo is formed, or excuse me, there may be other very specific scientific terms we've given to these things in those early stages, I forget. Awfully small, but a human being, and that's all that you need to work with. A self-integrating organism with its own DNA. Self-integrating means if it has the right environment and support, and nutrition, that little new organism, which is separate, not the same thing as an egg or a sperm, but together they come to form something new and independent of the mother, something new that if in the right environment and protected and supported and nourished, will itself grow to maturity through birth, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and then in a fallen world to death. Consider that. It's incredible. It's incredible. All human life is sacred, which excludes abortion from acceptable practices and responses to the news of pregnancy. This is why premarital sex is sin. We ought to say that and remind ourselves of that. And if we trust the Lord, we'll take him at his word. But there are good reasons for it. He has made our bodies for one another and the sexual act is a life-creating act and his life is sacred, so the sexual act is sacred and as the sexual act can give way to life itself, so it just makes sense and so it is morally right that that act should take place within the context of a covenant-committed marriage in which life can come. And in the normal circumstances, a child will have a mother and a father in a fallen world, sometimes there's not a father and sometimes parents die. But, but as God intended it, a child would be born into a, a married family and be supported with a mother and a father, both important. And the Lord has grace for those who grow up in different kinds of circumstances and not to make all the exceptions here, but only to hold out that as human life is precious and sacred, so the act of making human life, just consider that. Just consider that. The act of making human life is sacred. No, we don't pull these things so far apart. God has more in the act of sex for us than merely procreation. There's communion that's happening there. There's pleasure that's happening there. Neither can we separate it entirely from the life-giving nature of the act. And so let us remember that life is sacred and the act of making life is sacred. Euthanasia would be excluded by this understanding, this reverence for human life. 
That is, human life is sacred in the womb and until natural death. So sacred is life, more sacred than your choice over your own life. This is different than do not resuscitate orders or considerations at the end of life and consult a pastor and work with family on those kinds of things. I don't believe it would be right for me to say on the basis of this kind of a passage that we are obligated because of all of our technology to pursue life as far as we possibly can at all cost and at all extraneous medical measures. We are welcome to as we have them. But what I mean by speaking of euthanasia here is the decision to prematurely act on your life to end the life. To act with medicine or some other means to end your life. You don't have the authority at any point to terminate your own life. Human life is sacred in the womb and until natural death. And the reason there are protests in the streets near and around D.C. at the homes of Supreme Court justices is because there is a particular reverence and a particular sacred status that we give to something else. That is to equality. That is to human choice. And abortion is a means to an imaginary, impossible to achieve, and unnatural kind of equality between males and females. Oh, we're both capable of doing many things physically and mentally, but God has made us different and God has made women to bear children and God has made children to follow naturally from the act of sex. But for men who would desire to pursue that act and women who would desire to pursue economic and vocational parity with men, Abortion becomes a critical, critical means of seeing equality, at least approximated. And that matter of choice being sacred, that is ultimately the most sacred commitment that we have right now in our culture. And yet it is at odds with God who is himself the author of and authority over all of life. Now, let me make uh, another qualification as it concerns capital punishment. So I said all of life until natural death. Perhaps there are other ethical quandaries I'm not thinking of, but with capital punishment, even as far back as Genesis 9, it was instructed that, Mo, that uh, well, let me turn there briefly. In Genesis chapter 9, which sits behind some of the passage that we're in right now, And God blessed Noah here in verse one and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Kids are a good thing. The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. There's the gift of food and animals. And I gave to you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. There it is. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
And so capital punishment, something not to be executed by neighbors on one another, but by states who bear the sword. Think of the book of Romans in chapter 13, which speaks of that is actually a recognition of the preciousness and the sacredness and the value of life. That if one takes it, theirs will be taken. So it is not itself a devaluing of life, but an esteeming of life. And that would be a caveat to this matter. Blood, a gift for God alone. And blood, a gift from God alone. I had us turn to a New Testament passage to work out a little puzzle as to where, whether we could eat meat or not. But that is hardly the most important matter to solve here. The most important move for us to make from this passage to the present day is to understand what it is that Jesus has done for us. For in the garden, the Lord Jesus prayed to his father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And his father said, no. And earlier that evening, Jesus had held a cup with his disciples. And he said, take this and eat of the broken of the bread, the broken representing his broken body, my body given for you. And he gave them a cup of wine, which represented his blood. And so he said, drink this. This is the blood of his new covenant. And so God, having built into the story of the Bible, laws concerning blood, so that we might so revere life and reverence blood, has now given the very blood of his son, the life blood of his son for us, that we may feast on him forever and drink of his blood And by drinking his blood, not by drinking the juice, the wine itself, but by faith in the blood of Jesus, that we might be redeemed and forgiven and cleansed and saved and his. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise now in prayer that we have been made by someone we didn't come from nowhere but our lives are made by you and given to us by you and no matter what has happened to us or what our story is we are precious to you having been created in your image and we have been made by you but also for you And Father, we pray as those, if we are in Christ, who have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, we have been redeemed from the life that we have formerly lived in order that we might give our whole lives to you. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who gave his whole life to you for us. And you are not a God who had to be talked into this You are not a God who wasn't bought in, but as you have given the blood of the animals for the life is in the blood and you gave the animals for the people and their atonement. So you have given the life of your son for us willingly, even as he willingly went. And so as we give our lives to you, 
as you have drawn us to do so. Father, we pray that our lives would be, as your son's was, a pleasing aroma. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.